Our scripture reading tonight is taken from Mark chapter 15. You'll find the reading beginning on page 852 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in the order of worship. I'll begin reading chapter 15 at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. The cross has long been the logo of Christianity. Many people wear crosses around their necks or they have tattoos of crosses on their arms. We're so familiar with this sight that it no longer shocks us. For many people, the cross no longer evokes an ancient form of execution that was intended to intensify not only pain, but also shame. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they maximized its cruelty in order to serve as a public form of deterrence. The victims deliberately slowed death as they gradually lost blood and lost the ability to hoist themselves up in order to grasp one last breath was intended to serve as a dramatic way of saying, this is what happens to those who defy Rome. And for that reason, crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low, only slaves and rebels. It was reserved for those who were considered to be less than human. And that's why people in the first century found it so utterly shocking that Christians worshiped a crucified man. Archaeologists have found an early form of graffiti 
on a wall in Rome dating back to the end of the second century, which depicts a person raising a hand in prayer to a man hanging on a cross, but with the head of a donkey. And the mocking caption reads, Alex worships his God. The British historian, Tom Holland, has written this about the crucifixion. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god, could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. The ultimate offensiveness, though, was to one particular people, Jesus' own. The Jews, unlike their rulers, did not believe that a man might become a god. They believed that there was only the one almighty eternal deity, that such a god of all gods might have had a son, and that this son, suffering the fate of a slave, might have been tortured to death on a cross, were claims as stupefying as they were repellent. No more shocking reversal of their most devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemy, it was madness. This is strange. And we can't blame the critics for ridiculing Christians for worshiping someone who died in this way. And therefore, we can't escape the question of the meaning of the cross. Did Jesus' death mean anything? And so during our time together tonight, I'd like us to consider three possible answers to the question, why did Jesus die? So first, in answer to the question, why did Jesus die? Someone might say, well, Jesus didn't die. He was killed. Jesus was a helpless victim. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus' death was inevitable, they might say, because Jesus set himself up in direct opposition to the ruling authorities within his nation. They charged him with blasphemy because they were jealous, intensely jealous of his extraordinary popularity. They accused him of defaming the name of God by making himself equal with God. Jesus claimed for himself the honor, the privileges, the rights that belong to God alone. So they condemned him to death for blasphemy. But the Romans, of course, didn't care about any of this. They weren't concerned with religious matters. And Pontius Pilate, for his part, thought that Jesus was harmless. He was ready to torture him and then let him go. But the religious authorities outmaneuvered him because they convinced him that if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And that is what clinched it. If Jesus claimed to be the Christ, well, then that meant that he claimed to be a king. And they convinced Pilate that anyone who claims to be a king sets himself up in opposition to Caesar and is therefore a threat to the empire. So Jesus was sentenced to death on the charge of blasphemy by the religious authorities and on the charge of treason by the political authorities. He was executed as the king of the Jews. He was executed as an enemy of the state. Now, there's certainly a lot of truth in explaining the story that way. Jesus died because of blasphemy and because of treason. And yet, that doesn't tell the whole story. Because we know that Jesus was not merely a helpless victim. Long before that final week in Jerusalem, 
Jesus said that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing exactly what was going to happen when he got there. At least three times on the way to the city, he told his followers that he would be handed over to the authorities and that he would be killed. When he was arrested, he could have asked his followers to fight for him, but the one follower, the one disciple that had a weapon, Peter, Jesus turns to him and tells him to put his sword away. And then when he stood trial, he could have spoken in his own defense, and yet he remained silent. And when Jesus was brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Pilate boasted of his power to be able to either crucify Jesus or to release him. And Jesus quietly informed Pilate that he would have no authority over him whatsoever unless it had been first granted by his heavenly father. And even from the cross, Jesus refused to cry out to God to come and rescue and save him. No, instead, he willingly subjected himself to death on a cross. Now, there have been many famous deaths in history. We might think of Julius Caesar or Marie Antoinette. But there is no death like this because there is something inexplicably voluntary about the death of Jesus. And that is what sets it apart from all others. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, there's no, no way to take his life from him. No one takes my life from me, but rather I lay it down of my own accord. So in response to the question, why did Jesus die? Some would say, well, he was a helpless victim. But then others might say, well, he died because he was a loving example Jesus' death on the cross provided us with the example par excellence of what it means to love. 1 Peter chapter 2 explains that Jesus was innocent. And yet even though he was insulted, he didn't take revenge when he suffered. He didn't issue threats. But instead he continued to entrust himself into the hands of him who judges justly. And Peter tells us that Therefore, Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Now, the word that Peter uses there for example originally referred to a pattern of letters that children would trace in order to learn their ABCs. And in effect, what Peter is telling us here is that if we want to master the way of love, well, then we have to pattern our life after the life of Jesus. We have to pattern our life after his death on the cross. As Jesus himself said, there's no greater love than that a man should give his life for his friends. And so some might say that Jesus' death was the supreme example of love. But there's one little problem with that. Someone's death cannot be an example of anything unless they died for a reason. Let me give you a scenario. Let's imagine that you were standing outside on the street corner. There's a few people mingling around, a little bit of traffic. The lights on Park Avenue turn red, and then the walk sign lights up. And as the light changes, people begin to cross the street. And then just as the light is about to change again, you see me darting out into the intersection, into oncoming traffic, and then you watch as I'm slammed by a taxi cab and hit with such force that I die on the spot. Now, what does that death reveal? 
Is that an example of anything? Well, that death would not be an example of anything as far as you're concerned other than my own stupidity. It would be an example of negligence or reckless behavior. But let's say that what you don't know or what you couldn't see because of the traffic or because of the crowds is that just as that light changed and just as the traffic began to move, my daughter tripped and fell in the crosswalk. And as the lights change, I dart out into the intersection in order to shield my little girl with my own body so that the cab slams into me rather than her. I absorb the force of the blow so that she can get up and walk away without a scratch. Well, then you would say, that's love. He gave his life for hers. You see, someone's death is not an example of anything unless they died for a reason. And in a similar way, Jesus' death on the cross would not be an inspiring example of anything unless there was a reason for his death. Otherwise, it would just be a senseless tragedy, just a horrible loss of a young person's life. So what exactly was Jesus doing on the cross? And the consistent message of the scriptures is that he was not a helpless victim, he was not merely an example of love, but he was a sin bearer. First Peter chapter two goes on to say that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. But this is where we run into a lot of trouble because a lot of people, especially in New York City, would say, I don't like this. I don't feel like I need Christianity. I'm relatively happy. I'm not perfect, but I'm a decent person. And the message of the cross is offensive to me because I haven't done anything so wrong that it would require someone else to die for me in order for God to forgive me. And on top of that, it's immoral. It's immoral for someone else to be blamed for my words and actions. I'm responsible for the things that I've done. And so, what should we make of this objection? Well, I would suggest that your very resistance to Christianity, if you are resistant, reveals the problem. You've got to realize that you're not a neutral observer, but that you have a bias when it comes to investigating the person and the work, the claims of Jesus. There is something in you that will prevent you from wanting, from even wanting to trust and believe in Jesus. Because if Jesus isn't just a helpless victim, if he isn't merely an example of love, but if he is the son of God, if he is the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, well then that's a threat. Do you see that? That's a threat to your autonomy. That means that you're not the master of your own life. There's another master. It means that you can't live your life however way you want. It means that you have to yield control. You have to yield ultimate authority over your life and he can ask anything, anything of you. So you see, if Jesus really is the sin bearer, that's a threat. That's a threat to your independence. If he's the sin bearer, that not only places a check on your desires, but he also judges our actions. And we can't stand that. None of us can. We bristle at that threat to our independence. We don't want to have to answer to anyone. We don't want to have to answer to anyone other than ourselves, but that, my friends, that is the essence of sin. We do not want to have to answer to anyone other than ourselves. And as a result of that, 
There is something deep within all of our hearts that rejects God, that runs from God. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing rather than making him the center of our lives. But here's the point. If you cut yourself off from God, who is the ultimate source of life, then it inevitably leads to death. That is the natural consequence of sin. It naturally leads to death. And I don't mean physical death. I mean the second death, the ultimate death, spiritual death. If you cut yourself off from the one who is the very source of life, then you cut yourself off from life itself. And so the question is, how should God respond to our rejection? How should he respond to all of our betrayals and our rebellion and our failure? Well, John Stott put this helpfully many years ago. He said that the heart of both sin and salvation is substitution. The heart of both sin and salvation is substitution. And here's what he meant. He said that the essence of sin is human beings substituting themselves for God. We assert ourselves against God. We place ourselves in the place where God alone deserves to be. We put ourselves in God's place. We substitute ourselves for God. But the essence of salvation is God substitutes himself for human beings. God willingly sacrifices himself and puts himself in the place where only we deserve to be. He puts himself in our place. So look at Jesus. Look at him on the cross. See what happens to him there. That is what you and I deserve. Jesus willingly substitutes himself for us. He dies in your place on the cross as your substitute, as the sin bearer. But then you might ask, well, what did his death on the cross then actually accomplish? And we might say forgiveness. And that's right. But forgiveness is actually too weak of a word. Forgiveness is too weak of a word to describe what happened on the cross. No, the word is justification. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, for we are justified by his blood. Forgiveness tells us that we're off the hook and we can go. But justification tells us that we have been reconciled in relationship. We've been restored and therefore we can come. We are welcomed once more into relationship with God the Father. Now, what you need to understand is that the word justification and righteousness are the same word in Greek. It's the same word. And justification is a legal term borrowed from the world of the law court. To justify is the opposite of to condemn. To condemn means to declare guilty and to convict. But to justify means to declare not guilty, innocent, righteous, and to acquit. And so on the cross, Jesus justifies us. He declares us not guilty, innocent, righteous, and he welcomes us once more in relationship. But the logical question we should ask is how? How can he possibly do that? How can God declare us to be righteous when we know that we're not? How can he say that we're innocent when we know that we're guilty? And the answer is what many people have called the divine exchange. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus, faith so unites you to him that everything that is his becomes yours and everything that is yours becomes his. So faith comes between us and he takes our guilt, our condemnation, and our death, but he gives us his righteousness, his innocence, and his life. He substitutes himself for us. It's the most shocking statement in the scriptures. He was made sin. He who knew no sin was made sin on the cross. Jesus became sin with your sin so that you might become righteous with his righteousness. And this was the only way that God could condemn sin without condemning you. So what happens when you put your faith in Jesus? Well, two things. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus, despite who you are, despite what you've done, God declares you to be righteous. He justifies you. Not because of who you are, what you've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And simultaneously, at the very same time, he begins the process of making you actually righteous. He begins the process of progressively, gradually transforming you more and more into the very image of Jesus. And that is why Paul can say in Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation. There is not now nor ever will be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you realize what that means? Nothing you have ever done in the past can ever be held against you. You are free. And it doesn't matter what has been done to you. It doesn't matter what you have done yourself. Jesus makes you brand new, better than new. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, New creation. He gets so excited he can't even finish his sentence. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. And that is the gospel. But let me just tell you that many of us have a hard time accepting that. We don't like the gospel of Jesus as the sin bearer. Many of us prefer the gospel of Jesus, the loving example. But let's just say those who prefer that version of the gospel are right. Let's say I got up here tonight and said, look, here's the message of Christianity. This is why we're here tonight. This is what God wants you to know. You may not be perfect, but you're basically okay. And the whole reason why Jesus came was to help you become a better version of yourself. And so Jesus lived and he died in order to show us how to become more loving, how to become more kind, more gentle, more generous with one another. And above all, he wants, us to, he wants to encourage us to, to tolerate one another's differences so that we can live together in harmony. Now, if that was the message, if that's the heart of Christianity, who do you honestly think would come up to me after the service tonight and say, you know what, I've never heard this before. That message changed my life. That message won't change anyone's life. But what will change people's lives is the realization that God has substituted himself for us and he has done the unthinkable. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might be justified, so that he might make us new. And that is ultimately what changes everything. We don't need an example, we need a savior. An example of love cannot rescue us. It cannot redeem us. We don't need Jesus to tell us how to live our lives or show us 
how to live our lives. We need him to do it for us. And that is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived and he died the death that you and I deserve to die. And do you know what that means? First of all, it means that if you're united to Jesus, then God treats you as if you had already died on the cross yourself and paid the penalty for your sin. And therefore, it can never be held against you. God doesn't believe in double jeopardy. He's not going to hold that same sin against you twice. But at the same time, God treats you as if you had lived the perfect life of Jesus. He loves you, therefore, with the same love and to the same degree that he loves his own perfect son. God cannot love you any more than he already does in this moment because he loves you with the same love to the same degree that he loves his own son. And therefore, there's nothing that you could ever do to make God love you more, and there's nothing that you could ever do to make God love you less. We are not saved by Jesus' example. We are saved by his actions, and that is what it means to be saved by grace. You see, grace shows us that God's love for us is not merely conditional. He doesn't love us because of who we are or what we've done. But his love is even better than unconditional. He doesn't merely love us as we are. No, his love is contra-conditional. He loves us despite who we are, despite what we've done. And you see, when, when people hear that message, when it clicks, when the penny drops, that's what changes your life. That's the message that spread around the Mediterranean like lightning and turned the whole world upside down because no one had ever heard anything like this before. And when you receive it for yourself, you respond to Jesus by saying, I give you my life and I will follow you wherever you go. I'll live for you forever. That's why Newton would write, as soon as he heard the gospel, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You know that no matter what he asks of you, it will be perfectly right, consummately wise, and ultimately for your good, no matter how hard it might feel in the moment. And so when you receive that message for yourself, you'll say, I'll do whatever you ask. No sacrifice is too great. And no request is too small. So has that happened to you? Have you received that message for yourself? Do you really know what it means to become a Christian? Have you exchanged your spot for Jesus's? Have you received his life, his innocence, and his justification for yourself? If not, why not? There's no time like the present. And if you're interested in learning what it means to actually become a Christian, reach out. Talk to one of us. Reach out to me. My email is in the back of the order of worship. I would be delighted to speak with you. But if you are a Christian, if you have received this gospel of the sin bearer for yourself, my question to you tonight is, has the cross become the central defining reality of your life? Is the cross of Jesus the thing that animates your desires, that motivates all of your decisions, that fuels your imagination? Is that the hinge upon which everything turns in your, light, in your life? If not, well, then you still don't get it. Because love so amazing, so divine, demands our soul, our life, our all. So why did Jesus die? Well, Jesus did not die as a helpless victim. And he did not die merely to provide us with a loving example no, he died as the sin bearer. And that's what we celebrate at this table. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we thank you that Jesus lived and died and rose again, not to make us nice, but to make us new. We pray that you might enable us to receive him in faith and so unite us to him that everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us. We pray that we might experience anew this divine exchange as he takes our guilt, our condemnation, and our death and gives us, by sheer grace, his righteousness, his innocence, and his life. Enable us to take these truths deep into our hearts so that we might be transformed from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name.